Thank you for your love for us, uh, your grace and mercy in our lives. Now speak to us, uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so I did send out an email in our weekly update. I said today we're talking about money, so um, you know half of uh, us aren't here, which is awesome. Actually, a lot of people were at nine because Tim was playing the organ down there, which was just fantastic. Thanks, Tim. Uh, so what I wanted us to do was just think in the context of our vision, uh, and this is our vision. We thought, what are we going to do as a church? We want to be a place to which the unchurched just love coming, that, uh, that, there, that God is here, and that we're a church whose heart and lives are just open to all to come. And a church where the church, that is us, loves serving, that we love being part of this. We love serving each other, we love serving God, we love serving our city. We uh, did this little picture, you can, it's, it's really clear. Uh, Joe looked at it on my screen and made me change the colors and said, that looks really great. And it's now illegible on a big screen, but it does look great close up. Um, it really does. It's awesome. Uh, but what it shows you is uh, on, on the right-hand side here, we've got a process that says we do evangelism uh, and mercy and justice. People come to public worship. They move into spiritual formation and discipleship. Then we go back out to bear witness to Jesus. If you look closely on that, you'll see uh, those, under those two boxes on the right, there's a little, little label saying new staff. And so we are in the process of recruiting a staff person, as Richard said, to oversee and lead us and catalyze our work in mercy and justice and evangelism and connecting with the community, but also in helping our Sunday gatherings become more effective and welcoming to unchurched folk. Uh, so please pray for that. We're, we've only got three days a week of money allocated. It, it does seem to us that God has brought along a wonderful person. We've got a final interview with the whole parish council next week. Our commitment has been to employ a theologically trained woman who will share the pulpit with me and help us help lead the church and, uh, that, uh, and has strong leadership gifts and experience at church ministry, loves our DNA, loves what we're doing. Uh, you know, that's not been easy, but in a really quite wonderful way, we think that God has brought that person along to us. So uh, you'll hear more about that. But it would be great if you could just pray over the next two weeks that that process comes to a great resolution um, and that they are ready to start in February, uh, which would be awesome. Okay, so I'm actually really excited about that. So um, when we talked at Parish Council about the budget, I said to the parish council, I said, listen, a budget is not first and foremost a financial document. A budget is a spiritual document. Because money, in its essence, is not about money. Money is about life. Money is a store of value, but more fundamental than that, money is congealed life, right? So here's how it works. So... Uh, I, I've inherited a bunch of DNA, I've inherited a bunch of capacities, I've invested enormous amount in education and so forth. So in life, I take everything that I have been in my life and I exchange that. I, I offer goods and services to others and in return for giving you a bit of my life, you give me a bit of your life. And the medium of that exchange of life is money. That's what it is. Money is congealed life. So when we think about money spiritually, we're thinking about life in the first instance. 
So whenever I speak on money at, in churches, uh, at one level, it's never about we've got to beat you up to get more money for our budget. That's silly. What it is is an opportunity to lean into our own spiritual growth and say, okay, Lord, how do we, how do we grow in this area? Because, listen, uh, we are living in very, very, very challenging times. Life is not the way it was 20 years ago. Or 30 years ago, it depends when you think the asset bubble started inflating. Uh, we live in Australia in a debt-fueled asset bubble with 20 years of stagnant wage growth, an aging population, and massively increasing global uncertainty. Uh, we are the, one of the second highest in de- we have the second highest level of personal debt in the world. 190% of average income. I mean, it's extraordinary the levels of debt we have. Uh, you could argue our whole economy is built on a house of cards. We've had 26 years since the recession we had to have. Uh, we look more like a banana republic now, to quote Paul Keating, than we did when he made that speech. We live in a period of unparalleled economic and geopolitical uncertainty. Uh, we just need one, you know, I mean, all kinds of things could go wrong uh, that would be devastating for us at any number of levels. Just for example, uh, the economic disruption of the digitization of everything is changing the world. Uh, Fully autonomous uh, electric vehicles uh, could be rolled out. We could replace the entire global stock of cars in 20 years. Do you know that 25% of the global workforce is employed in driving vehicles? So within a generation, we've got to find new work for 25% of the global workforce. It's huge, right? Uh, it's absolutely massive. Now, in this world of uncertainty, and that's not including, you know, we start thinking about, you know, a massive pandemic of an antibiotic-resistant uh, flu virus or, or, uh, or bacteria, some massive public health outbreak, uh, nuclear war on the Korean Peninsula, uh, you name it, you know, massive economic crises around uh, global warming or climate change, economic uh, refugee flows, huge. I mean, you, gosh, you start thinking, you go, oh, my goodness, don't you? So what's the common strategy in Australia? It's all you just don't think about it, isn't it? Mate, let's go out and have a coffee and a smashed avocado and just think it's all going to be okay. Kick the can down the road. Flourishing in this world requires doing two things or requires conquering two things. We've got to conquer fear and we've got to conquer greed, don't we? I've just tried to make you a little scared. It's not hard to make people scared when it comes to money. These are the two emotions that drive all markets. They drive our engagement with money. Uh, They're very powerful. Uh, So we've got to figure out a way, if we're going to flourish in this world, we've got to figure out a way, how do I get free of fear of money, of of losing money, of being poor? And how do I get free of greed? Uh, This is why the Ponzi scheme of, you know, asset bubble inflation is working because we're all still greedy and we're hoping some greater fool will buy the asset we've purchased in a few years' time. Uh, and uh, we don't mind the fact that actually we're creating a generational injustice uh, and pricing our own kids and grandkids out of the market. It's, it's, it's just greed, right? So uh, here's the hypothesis that I want to advance. This is the hope. And this is if, you, if you're visiting church and you don't normally come along, um, let me tell you that... Uh, that we believe fundamentally Jesus is the best guide to a life of financial peace, freedom, and flourishing. He really is. 
That's, that's a firm conviction that we have. Uh, and we do an interesting thing with Jesus, don't we, very often? Uh, that is, if we're religious, we can think Jesus is super smart about lots of stuff, right? Like particularly around spiritual stuff like prayer and Bible and all the sort of religious stuff. But in many other areas of life, we don't think Jesus was that smart. Certainly not as smart as our economists and accountants and financial planners. And Jesus, you're really smart when it comes to, to, to God stuff. You're not that smart when it comes to money. Uh, the conviction of the Bible and of the Christian faith is Jesus, because he made the world and he made us and he loves us deeply, is the smartest person in the world and he knows more about everything about this world and what will bring us good than anyone else does. So when it comes to money, if we learn how to follow Jesus well, we will find lives of financial peace, freedom, and flourishing. Uh, let me tell you what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that if you give your money to Jesus, it's going to come right back at you tenfold. Typically, what Jesus says is when you give your money away, it's gone. You actually have less. That's the problem, right? So <laughs> that's the hard thing about, I mean, lots of churches try and get around that by saying, well, if you give it away, it's all going to come back to you. Uh, typically, you give it away, it's gone. Okay, that's what Jesus says. That's why it's so hard. Unless anyone else has a testimony here of, you know, giving away and then getting tenfold back and that's worked for the entire course of their lives. No? Okay, you give me your Rolls Royce and you'll get 10 Rolls Royces back. You know, that's how it used to be pitched. Not true at all. Not true at all. So what I'm going to do in the next uh, 10 minutes is nine biblical principles to find financial freedom. Uh, there's a lot of texts here. I did think that we could do a nine-week series on money and do 40 minutes on each principle. And I thought that would be so exciting. Uh, it would empty the church, <laughs> particularly this time of year. So we're going to do it in, in uh, we're just going to go over quickly. The slides will be posted online and, uh, and we'll all be good. Okay, so first principle, if you want freedom, if you want to flourish financially, give your heart to Jesus, not to money, not to your money. Uh, Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, he didn't have blockchain back then, blockchain technology and Bitcoin, but, you know, still. So. I thought that was quite funny. No one else thought it was funny. They didn't laugh at 9 o'clock either, but I'm persisting with that joke. Um, don't store up for yourself uh, treasures where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal, and here's the kicker, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Christian life, and if you're visiting and you're exploring it all, here's what you need to know. The Christian life is about your heart in the first instance. We live from our hearts, right? Uh, and then uh, Jesus says this, which is enormously confronting. Uh, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, 21st century Christian consumer capitalism has tried extraordinarily hard to do what Jesus said it's impossible to do, haven't we? We've really tried hard. And Jesus says it just doesn't work. It just doesn't. And the harder we try, the more miserable we actually get, I think. Serving money makes us miserable. Trying to serve money and Jesus, I think, makes us even more miserable. So, 
Give your heart to Jesus first, not your money. Second principle, uh, the reason we give our hearts to Jesus is because God is exceedingly generous to us, isn't he? This is at the heart of our faith. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave a fraction of his son's time left over from enjoying his presence himself to us. Isn't that what God did? God loaned us his son at a, you know, at a good internal rate of return so that we could make use of him for a season. No, no, no. It says God loves us so much that what did he do? He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through you, through his poverty, you might become rich. I mean, this is at the heart of the universe, is a God who is exceedingly rich, who became completely poor, so that we might have an eternity of life with him in glory and riches. God is exceedingly generous. Now, I know that's hard to believe, isn't it, sometimes? It, it really is. And that's, I, you know, we, we just don't think God can be trusted. He's not reliable. But this is what it says. If God, God is so generous, he would give his only son for us. Principle three, God owns everything and we are his managers. It's not ours anyway, is it? Uh, Psalm 24:1. The earth is the Lord's, and everything is, uh, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Uh, Leviticus 25. The land is mine, and you are but aliens and my tenants. We don't know. I mean, we, uh, you know, the great Australian property dream: own your house. You don't own it. You're you're looking after it from God. I mean, you might have the mortgage, and you might not owe it. You might pay that off over time. But in the end, it's still God's. Everything we have is God's. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. And then I think my favorite verse of all, 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. You were bought at a price. Everything comes from God. Uh, Deuteronomy says this. By the way, this isn't a recipe for miserable poverty, right? Uh, Because Deuteronomy says, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Like, I'm an economic conservative. I'm really pro-business. I'm really pro-wealth creation. I think creating wealth is a really good thing to do. It's part of being made in the image of God. And, and in our church and in our community, many of us have been blessed with the ability to create wealth. As Warren Buffett said, we've won the genetic lottery, you know? Smart, educated. I mean, the single greatest predictor of social standing in Australia and in the developed world is the wealth of your parents. (laughs) Actually, the myth of the self-made person, uh, it doesn't really work. We're all, our wealth comes from this massive array of factors, uh, where we're born, where we're educated, all kinds of stuff. And then God says, fundamentally, you know what? It's a gift for me. So if you've got wealth, your ability to make wealth comes from God. Remember that. And therefore, we are responsible to steward that wealth, to look after it under God. Uh, Principle four, we must withhold nothing from the God who gives everything. Ouch. Ouch. If it's all his, we can't hold hold anything back. 
In the same way, Jesus says, any of you who does not give up everything he or she has cannot be my disciples. Isn't that extraordinary? You can't, uh, listen, you can't actually be a Christian if you're holding on to a big chunk of your life. Because being a Christian is coming empty-handed to the cross of Jesus and then holding on to him. If you're really holding on to Jesus, you don't have any space in your life left to hold on to little bits and pieces of, I want my wealth, my career, my vocation, my relationships. You go, no, I just, I hold on to Jesus. He gives me everything else. But I, I can't hang on to stuff. Uh, Jesus seems to say, don't withhold anything from God. Uh, principle five, sisters and brothers, we must live in the light of eternity. Uh, look, our citizenship is in heaven. That doesn't mean we can't stand for parliament. You know, I mean, that's not the citizenship that is recognized in the current debate. But that's where we really belong. We are passing through here. I thought that joke was funny as well. No one else did. I can say. Tough crowd this morning, man. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we've got to live in the light of eternity. Um, uh, 1 Timothy 6, and I love this. Lest you think uh, I'm being too forthright. I know talking about money is sometimes not popular in our affluent Anglican circles. But listen, Paul says to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Like, it's not an option. It's not an option because in this way we will lay up for ourselves treasures as a firm foundation to, for the coming age so they may take hold of the life that truly is life. If you live for this world, this world is all you'll get. If you live for the next world, you'll get this world as well as the next. Hmm. Um. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength, yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Psalm 90, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Oh boy. <laughs> is that a hard one, you know? What, you go to see your financial planner and they what's your investment horizon? What phase of your life are you in? Are you in the accumulation phase? I don't know what that is, actually. I, I've read that somewhere. I've, how do you accumulate? It's a mystery to me. I don't know what that is. But anyway, apparently some people have that phase in their lives. And if you're there, God bless you. Uh, but you could be dead tomorrow, the text says. Or you could live for another 50 or 60 years. Like, we just don't know. So be remember, we live in the light of eternity. Uh, which means uh, wealth is fleeting and accumulation is dangerous. Okay. Wealth is fleeting comes, it goes. And living to accumulate more money is really spiritually dangerous. Let me ask you a question. What is, how, how much, how much do you need to live on the peninsula, the, the you know, Roselle, Belmain Peninsula? How much money do you need to live here? Well, or if you're living, if you're from other parts of Sydney, how much do you need to live? That's it. That was my joke. That's exactly right. The answer is more. Let me tell you, you, we've never got enough. We always need more. Ecclesiastes 5, whoever loves money never has enough. Uh, whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Money is at least as addictive as the most addictive opioid. It's as addictive as crack cocaine. 
You know, like it's just, you never get enough. It has the same tolerance effect. It messes with our priorities. It grabs our hearts. We always need more. We always need more. It's the guy I knew once who was probably worth 100 million. And uh, I've never met someone who worried about money that much. And his comment was, well, you know, um, he wasn't yet a Christian. And he said, well, it's really, it's really hard to accumulate capital and you can lose it so quickly. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm really worried for you, brother. You know, 100 million, that's not quite enough. He's not quite secure enough, right? I'm like, wow, we always need more. It's spiritually dangerous. Uh, Luke 6, Jesus says, <laughs> woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your reward. If, you, if this is what you're living for, if your reward is money, you got it now, Jesus seems to say. Uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard. It's hard. And then the famous verse uh, from 1 Timothy 6, people uh, who want to get rich fall into temptation and many kinds of traps. Um, uh, Hebrews uh, principle 7. Do you know what the greatest vaccine to greed is? It's giving your money away. It's just giving it away. There's, there's actually, I, I mean, this is really it. If you want to be free of anxiety and fear for money, and you want to be free of greed, and you want to be spiritually healthy, the answer is really, really, really simple. Just learn to give your money away. Because guess what? You'll never give away what you really love, will you? I mean, when our they aren't in church. When our children were really little, and it's wonderful the kids are coming back now, when our kids were really little, there were moments when it did occur to me it would be nice to give them away. <laughs> Do I hear an amen from any other parent in that? You think, ah, oh, it'd be lovely to give them away. But we never did. Why? Because we love them. We love them. You never give away what you really, really love. You only give away things that aren't fundamentally important to you. So the only way to be free of greed is to be generous. That's why being generous is massively important spiritually because it's the antidote to greed. Um, I have a working assumption about myself. Uh, confession time for me, it's cheaper than therapy. And my working assumption is I struggle with two things right now in my life, and I think we all do. But for me, it's my working assumption, even if, even if there's no external evidence, in my heart, I'm going to struggle with pride and in my heart, I'm going to struggle with greed. I just go, I think that's, I just have to always be aware that these are like pernicious diseases that just grab hold and grow. And to break the, actually to break both of them in our culture, you've just got to be generous and give them away. Uh, uh, here's one for uh, the inner west of Sydney. God prospers us not to raise our standard of living, but our standard of giving. You know? Uh, I don't know. Acts 20, do you really believe Jesus when he said uh, it's more blessed to give than to receive? Like you'll be happier giving than receiving? I reckon most of us know that to be true, don't we? Because we've all experienced it. It's just hard to keep believing it, but it is true. Um, so God gives us more so that we can be more generous, not just to ratchet up our standard of living, uh, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. And 
the last principle for us. Our giving must reflect God's agenda. God's agenda, big picture, two things we should give to. One is to, uh, to the work of bringing God's kingdom into this world through the proclamation of the gospel, to planting churches, to doing what we do as church, to bring women and men and girls and boys to know the saving love of Jesus. We need to fund that. We need to fuel that. That's why God gives us money, so we can channel money into that. That's the first thing, which means that's why we, by the way, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, that's why we give to the work of Darling Street. We're not a club that charges subscriptions, and we don't give just to keep the doors open. We give because we are a mission agency. We are here as God's people on mission with God to bring the kingdom of God to this part of the city, to bring girls and boys and women and men into the saving love of Jesus. That's why we give to this, we're, because actually we're the best, we have to think we are the best placed people in this part of the city to do this gospel work. That's why we fund it, right? And, and if we don't think we're the best people to do it, we should put our money to somebody who's better than us. Or we should become, you know what I mean? Like we should step up to the plate. Uh, but the second thing we should do is we need to give uh, to serve the poor and to, to bring about justice and mercy in the world. And so one of the things I'm excited about uh, with the staff person we're looking at is how do we lean more deeply into this work of justice and mercy? How do we, how do we start to do that? But I also want to say uh, that's why we unashamedly encourage people to give deeply to NGOs and charities that do this work of poverty alleviation, bringing justice and mercy into the world. Like, they're really, 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 really good things to do. And there's no ultimate competition between giving to church and giving to, to the alleviation of poverty. There's enough money in God's kingdom for both to be done, and both should be done. Uh, we are looking, uh, just to give you a heads up, we are getting, looking at some uh, legal structures to enable us to do tax-deductible giving a little better. But uh, one of the reasons we encourage us to be generous through other organizations is they have deductible gift recipient status, so it makes sense to take advantage of giving directly to them. And uh, not everything comes through the church. Some churches teach the, what do they call it? Some principle, shows how I haven't taught it, where you've got to give your 10% tithes directly to the church first, your first lot of giving, your first fruits giving goes to the church. I'm not super convinced that's true. I just think we've got to give really generously to the causes that are on God's heart, which is extending his kingdom through the local church and serving the poor. We do that as God leads us with freedom and generosity and grace. So um, that's what we do. And uh, those are nine principles. And I am done. There's a lot there. The hard bit is not understanding them because they're not hard to understand, is it? What's the hard bit? Actually living into that. That's hard, right? So I want to pray for us. Like it really is. And um, we're intensely private about our money, aren't we? And, and that, that at one level, there's some good benefits for that and reasons for it. But another level, it can work against us. So we need people around us who, who can call us out when greed is capturing our hearts who can help us be wise and good stewards. And, uh, and, and what excites me is over the next 10, 15, 20 years to continue to build a church where we, we model for a culture that is gripped by anxiety, by fear and greed, we can model what it is to be set free from those emotions by Jesus 
and living for him. It's very powerful, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord God, speak to us. Uh, Lord God, work in us. We've heard these principles. Uh, gosh, they're not hard to understand, but they are so hard to live out, Lord. So fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us courage to trust you. And I pray that uh, we will be, not, not just us, but all your people in Sydney and in Australia and around the world will be known as people who love you and others more than they love money. And that we have found enormous peace and freedom uh, because of the work you've done in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.